Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Welcome to StageCraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of StageCraft, I'm talking to three of the creators behind the new Broadway musical, Beetlejuice. Based on director Tim Burton's 1988 screen comedy about a gothy teen, her snooty family, a straight-laced recently deceased couple, and one outrageous demon, this new stage version comes from songwriter Eddie Perfect and book writers Scott Brown and Anthony King. Eddie Perfect is the Australian writer-composer who's made a big splash on Broadway this season, first with King Kong and now with Beetlejuice, while co-writers Scott Brown and Anthony King both have busy careers as TV writer-producers, with King working on shows like Broad City and Silicon Valley, and Brown on Sharp Objects and Castle Rock. Theatergoers, though, might recognize their names as the creators of Gutenberg the Musical, the show they created back in 2006, or you might remember Brown's byline from back when he was the theater critic at New York Magazine. All three of them are in the studio with me to tell us about wrestling the anarchic spirit of Beetlejuice onto the stage, what they kept, what they changed, and what they learned along the way. Hey, Eddie, Anthony, and Scott. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So I'm talking to you. We're recording this the morning of your first preview performance for a paying Broadway audience. How are you guys feeling? Well, you put the word paying in there. And that has given me chills. So. <laughs> well, I mean, Look, I, I saw it yesterday. I saw <laughs> rehearsal yesterday. I just didn't pay for it. So. <laughs> That's true. They, right. They're, that means they're paying, right? Correct. Good. Okay. Um, no, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, you know, we'd look at this as like, we're like shopkeepers. We're like, people are paying money? That right. means we get something, right? right. <laughs> what could be bad about that? I hope they like our cookies. I yeah. know. I know. It feels like we made a big batch of donuts. And yeah. it's like, here, let's try the donuts. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to throw the donuts in the bean. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. 
And you, you're, you've arrived on Broadway after um, Beetlejuice had a run in the fall, a tryout run in um, DC, and so this is kind of the end of a you know um, storied you know Broadway process of yeah. you, the show tries out out of town, and then you do some work on it, guided by largely by um, what you learned from those performances um, to get it to Broadway. Tell us about what you learned um, and what uh, who you learned it from. Um, Eddie, let's start with you. All right. Um, well. This is the part of the process after you've already done a main stage production that does not exist in Australia. So basically in Australia, if you're making a, a new piece, you know, you create it, you workshop it, you rehearse it, you put it on, and whatever you learn kind of goes with that show to the grave. Either it succeeds or it, or it doesn't. This part of the process where we did, you know, a, six, a bunch of workshops over multiple years... Right. And then we eventually um, rehearsed and put it up in the National Theatre in Washington, D.C. We did a six-week season, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we got to take everything we learned about the show, which comes from a multitude of sources, comes from all of our combined kind of opinions on it, but also largely about what audiences are responding to, critical response. Um, they gather a whole bunch of data, too, that's pretty interesting that has to be sort of interpreted. And then you get this like, do-over. Uh, like survey data? Like survey, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. survey data. And, and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, which is really interesting as well. You know, some of it's... It, and it, that all really depends on the questions being asked as to how you kind of uh, extrapolate what the meaning is and how you're going to apply it. But this is the part where we got to... We, what we closed in early November. And basically from that point until this point, it's been kind of constant sort of rewriting we did another workshop we put it into rehearsals so we learned a huge amount about the show i mean it's a comedy it's a it's a kind of a dark comedy and we learned what audiences feel comfortable laughing at what they feel uncomfortable laughing at and then what we feel comfortable making the audience feel uncomfortable about and what we feel uncomfortable making (laughs) the audience feel uncomfortable about all that sort of stuff so it's a it's a bit of an alchemy really isn't it right yeah there's some what's interesting to me about what I feel like I learned from DC was we because it is comedy is always so subjective uh, and we had audiences that were so raucous and then we've kind of through the survey data found out that some of the people that love the show some of the jokes they were like I don't know if I can tell my parents to come to this Mm. Uh, because they were just like it's a little dirty or whatever Uh, and it was kind of like interesting to go like oh you love it (laughs) Uh, but you don't know and so it was like those are some of the things we were looking at when we were kind of rewriting is like um, how do we make those people go like still love it, but also but want to tell their parents to go? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and it's a little bit of like un- understanding, I think, also that like we all come from comedy backgrounds. Uh, you toured comedy in Australia. I did comedy here. Uh, wrote comedy with Scott, and uh, and you know Broadway is a bigger audience, uh, and so just expanding that tent, I think, um, was a big part of what we were doing after DC. Broadway is a bigger audience than, than who? Than, I think it's just a big. It's a mass audience. Because in I some way, more so than like some of the TV writing that you're yeah, doing. Yeah, I, so. I think so. I think so. I think so because it has that collective experience. Uh-huh. You know, um, oh, yeah. where television is more. <laughs> you and your spouse or whatever yeah. <laughs> watching in right. your living room. Right. Which is why it probably translates more from the kind of comedy that you create. You know and. You know, in, at UCB or in the basement right. somewhere, or some kind of thing that has like a you know sort of a niche audience that isn't more interested in 
edgy things and being kind of, you know, knocked off a cliff by something. And right. people responded to that kind of stuff in D.C., but it, it's, as Anthony said, it was a question of, like, did it expand out to that to that right. larger audience? Right. D.C. was kind of like the midnight movie version of Beetlejuice. Oh, <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> and, and you've been reviewed already because there you, there were reviews yeah. in, in D.C. Um, of the show as it existed in D.C., uh, what did you learn from those reviews? And Scott, do you read reviews differently as someone who used to review yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are like two kinds of people who don't read reviews, right? There are the actors who say they don't read reviews, and then there are critics who say they don't read other people's reviews. And, right. And they're, and they're both lying. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, it was fascinating being, being, being reviewed and kind of like reading through and, 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 and reading the reviews as a, as a critic was kind of interesting, too. Just right. kind of looking at how people were receiving it emotionally. I think when, you know, when most people read reviews, they just kind of think of it as, a, you know, a document. Like, oh, it's like, right. here's a report on the show. Right. But should I go see this or not? Should right? I go see yeah. this or not? Which, you know, that's part of the review's job is to do that. Right. But it's also just kind of an emotional map of, like, how the person who was watching it felt, what right. they expected, how those expectations were upended, either pleasurably or not. And right. uh, it was very interesting reading those reviews through that lens. What did you learn? What was the main takeaway from the reviews? And how did it differ from the takeaway that you got from audiences, general audiences? I think, I mean, I think one thing we learned from the reviews that was that uh, if there is a possibly a certain expectation going into the show, uh, either that it's going to track more to the movie than it does, right. um, or that there are just certain takeaways from the movie that, that the person already has. The movie is such a strange thing. It's such a it's such an amorphous, beautiful, bizarre kind of object, and I, I think people have very personalized relationships with that movie right. because it admits so many different interpretations and people can receive it so in so many different ways. Um, so I think, you know, if the show has to be somewhat welcoming uh, to, 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 to people who have not just different interpretations of the movie, but no interpretation of the movie at all. And I think opening the show up emotionally was, was, was part of the, the big thing that we learned that we had to do, which you guys sort of agree with. That. Yeah. One, one really interesting thing was that um, uh, even, you know, reading some of the, or hearing some of the feedback from audiences who really loved it, they didn't necessarily love it for the reasons that we wanted them to, to love it for, you know? So, you know, the people would be like, oh, you know, it doesn't, you know, there's, we we love that it's raucous and it's fun and they were the kind of top line things you know it's not serious it's absurd but underneath there is a huge amount of absurd comedy in Beetlejuice I mean it it, it really is one of those shows where we've been given licenses as writers to kind of create anything to go anywhere to conjure anything to you know suddenly have a gospel choir appear from you know there are no rules really except kind of delight but you have to be careful to make sure that the, the delightful web you weave doesn't trample the emotional story. And I think we all felt that that the story we wanted to tell primarily was about this, you know, a, a young girl um, suffering with, through grief with a father who won't acknowledge her grief or talk about the mother that she's lost and um, how damaging that is. And that, and that our story really was that, you know, humans need each other. They need to talk to each other. They need to... Hold, hold on to each other and life is worth living for the I guess the people that we surround ourselves with whether they're um, you know like 
a bunch of glorious misfits or or not. And that story, I think, could be clearer, and that's what we worked really hard to make clearer this time around. But also, we don't want to jettison any of the absurdity. So it's right. it's a real balancing act. Right. And how like had, have you written a whole lot of new songs? Like, what's your take? For, this is actually could be a question for all of you. What's your take on how much is new? How much has shifted since? Um... The structure of the show is basically the same, but yeah. a lot of the uh, I look at it as like a lot of the like, like Eddie was saying, a lot of the emotional content that was in the show I think was buried at a level that the audience wasn't aware it was there. Like we were, but it wasn't right. it just wasn't connecting. And so yeah. I feel like so much we did an enormous amount of rewriting, and a lot of it was just unearthing that and bringing it to the surface more and making a lot of the subtext text. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we definitely got into a place where we were like, well, I mean, I think the audience is with us on this, you know, they're or ahead of us. I mean, they, they've, you know, we don't want to be too on the nose here. We don't want to sure. shove anything down their throats, and 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 instead we pursued like, you know, pace and laughs in a, in a way that was good and like right. enriched the show. But then we looked back and found out, like, but oh, you left we, the audience behind. We yeah. yeah. weren't on the nose. Little, they didn't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And dealing with the polarizing idea, that's always a real challenge. I found that really interesting. Like, we're, like for example, just to yeah. be specific, um, in Act 2 uh, in the Netherworld in Beetlejuice, we, in DC, we had that. This, this boy band just rose out of the stage <laughs> for no reason um, <laughs> who were like kind of co-opted by uh, the Juno the head of the netherworld oh, okay. to kind of do a sort of an infomercial type song that welcomed you to the blissful numbness of the netherworld right. and you know it was it was totally um, absurd and people either loved that or they absolutely loathed it yeah and people, like audiences went insane for it they loved it yeah. and then there are people that were like what is this <laughs> so you like, dare you so you like, ruined my netherworld yeah and we didn't we didn't hear them because they they didn't make any noise. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's really t- tricky because you're like, do I kill half people's darlings, right. or you know, like, who are you? What do you do with a, with a polarizing idea? And that's a real challenge, you know. Right. Um, but that is one of the things that got rewritten, and sadly, the um, Boy Inferno are, are, yes. are no longer with us. Alas. Um, but they live in my heart. And, uh, <laughs> and, in, and in a box of merchandise that no one will ever buy. <laughs> yes. I have some of it. Yeah, there is a T-shirt. So. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So let's see if people really loved Boy yeah. Inferno. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you uh, all first got attached to the project. Um, Scott, you just wrote a piece in New York Magazine uh, about your experience going from being one who reviews to one who is reviewed, um, in which, if I understood it correctly, you were involved in Beetlejuice even before you started reviewing in New York Magazine? That's how long. That feels like forever. <laughs> no, it does. It takes a it long doesn't... time for a Broadway show to get to Broadway. But that, I mean, that when was that? How long ago was that? That was, I think both of those things happened in 2010. Uh, I think the uh, Alex okay, yeah. approached us about the show in... Yeah. 2010, and then... I this think is Alex Timbers, the director. Alex yeah. Timbers, the director. Um, and then a couple of months later, uh, New York Magazine called, and I was wow. I was sort of in a long uh, bake-off for that job, and right. there were some other people rotating in and out. So it wasn't completely clear, but it started to become more of a, you know, my only gig around about then. I remember okay. calling Anthony and saying... What do you what do you think about this? Because we we just gotten involved in, <laughs> in Beetlejuice, and yeah. like it seems this seems kind of weird. And I talked to Adam Moss about it and said, like, I don't. There are some. Adam Moss was the editor in chief of New York Magazine. Editor in chief, yeah. Right. Um, um, and what what appealed to you, both of you about the idea at the time? 
for me, it was immediately just because of how fantastical and absurd it is, it just immediately felt like, oh, this could be a musical, and right. there's so many things to musicalize about it. And the other thing was, from the beginning... Le- uh, like what? Can you go into something uh, specific? To, because you, what any your kind of like heightened world like okay. that, I yeah. think... To me, there's always a question when you're turning anything into a musical of, like, why are people singing? Why is that language connect with the material? Right. Uh, and so, because Beetlejuice is so heightened, you immediately, I wasn't, like, going, well, what is Beetlejuice going to sing about? Or yeah, how right. is he going to sing? It's like, oh, I can see. He's already a showman. Right. He's almost a lounge singer. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, right, right. So, uh, so it just made sense. And then the other thing was, from the beginning, they wanted to make Lydia the main character. Right. Uh, and we grew up watching the Beetlejuice cartoon, where it is Lydia and Beetlejuice. Which, in my memory, was hilarious. Yeah. Is it funny? Very, is it still funny? funny? Have it you watched funny. it lately? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, it was one of those slightly edgier cartoons yeah, that had like writers like everything in the '90s, slightly problematic. And, yeah. now, but, uh, <laughs> <Sure>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. but uh but it is funny, and it was about like Beetlejuice is almost Lydia's pet in that right. uh, her like fantastical pet, and so that was exciting too of like oh building it around because the one thing about the movie I think that's hard to musicalize is the driving emotional story of the movie is kind of uh, middle class. Uh, Property wars, <laughs> yeah. yes, and that's kind of hard to sing about. Right, it's, um, a, it's a design battle. It's like an extreme yeah. homemaker yeah. kind of. But, like, but buried in that is this like teen who Delia's not her mom, and they don't really get into that. Right. And so once it was like, let's make that front and center. It was kind yeah. of, uh, it was like, oh, there's something here to 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 tell an actual emotional story about. Right, right. And then Eddie, when did you first get involved? I came along later. Yeah, look, much later. I, I think I've been on the project for four four years or something. Mm-hmm. But um, I that's when it really started going. Yeah, it was a very yeah. long. Like, right. Was, was it lo- you guys? I'm talking to the writers now. Was it you guys? Um, breaking sort of breaking down what a musical would look like before yeah, you found a, a songwriter. That's right. Okay. That's right. And then long right. periods of like change over at Warner Brothers and yeah, right. <laughs> us right. doing other things and yeah, you know right. And, yeah. Right. yeah 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 it's not like it was not like a constant building no. in the shop for all no. of those you know, <laughs> right yeah yeah almost nine years I mean I was I was, I was really lucky because there was a script you know yeah, right. and a really funny script and like and for my brain like perfectly laid out script where it would be like there's a scene and then in these big parenthetical sections in bold it'd be like there's a song and, song and, and this amazing yeah. song brief and like just by magic that's kind of like how I love to work and I have worked a lot is like you know writing to a brief or either of my own creation or of someone else's creation so I was like immediately yeah I can hear what this might be and um and so I was like pitching on the show and it coincided with me um trying to start working in New York and I knew the script was floating around and I knew there wasn't a writer yet but I I kind of had to like um cajole my way into pitching on it and um, wrote a song for Beetlejuice and wrote a song for Lydia and it kind of went from there so are either of them still on the show yeah both of them are still on the show yeah yeah I wrote another I wrote an opening number which is not in the show which um, got cut like years ago called Mm. Death's Not Great Um, (laughs) and in fact it's like I mean I don't know I don't know what's normal for for a musical but there are extraordinary amount we've we've What's been so exciting about the making of this show is that um, there's an extraordinary amount of scenes and songs that have been cut from this. We, we, right. we had the time and the luxury and the tenacity, I think, to follow certain paths and end up in cul-de-sacs and see what worked and what didn't work, and we were never afraid. It was a culture of not being afraid, which sort of stems from these two guys here of 
if it's not working, let's cut it and start again and see what we can what we can do. And that's remained all the way up until like right now. Right. And for some American audiences or a lot of American audiences, it seems like, wait, who's this Eddie Perfect guy who's suddenly writing two Broadway shows? Yeah, with a stupid <laughs> name. You've done a whole lot of stuff. You've done a whole lot of work in Australia. You came to New York coming, uh, yeah, doing yeah. a whole lot of What specifically in your CV do you feel like uh, chimes most with the work you've done at Beetlejuice? Like, what have you drawn on most? To- um, probably my own career as a cabaret performer performing my own songs. It's not a million miles away from Beetlejuice, to be honest. Right. Like, um, the the combination of um, trying to charm an audience but to scare the pants off them and walk a line of um, safe, unsafe, um, to still have them but to kind of manipulate them and to sometimes to shock and to seduce and to startle. All that things were, were things that in comedy and especially music comedy I was really interested in, you know, like how how can I play with how much rope have I got to play with this audience? And so that really informed, you know, um, the Beetlejuice character because he's not constrained by a fourth wall. He's basically, he's kind of like an MC in, trapped inside a Broadway show. So that was really informative. And also I like to write funny sad, you know, like I think um, the idea of a comedy that earns its moments of pathos that are unexpected um, are really delightful and we've seen them play out my favorite kind of um comedy i think comedy is very a very emotional art form if i think it's probably the most emotional art form without wanting to um, piss any drama people off but um <laughs> but you know it, it, it's it's human and it's real and it's our faults and it's our failings and it's our, our needs front and center which makes us kind of vulnerable and and i think that's really a really fun dynamic to play with so i think that's it was just a miraculous perfect fit for me i think for me well, yeah. And then Anthony and Scott, you've done a whole lot of work in TV since Gutenberg the Musical. How has working in that medium kind of influenced the way uh, you've attacked uh, Beetlejuice? I think for me, it's that the the at least the background I have in in television is with writing mostly comedy. Is like if something if like a joke doesn't hit, you rewrite it. Like you just right. immediately are like, well, then we can make it better. Uh, and that. I don't know if that's always the uh, guiding principle in theater where it's more like the author has written the Bible and you will perform the work (laughs) (laughs) a lot of times. And uh, so that collaboration, luckily, I think Alex Timbers, uh, our director, is is very open to that. And so that's been really fun to be able to just like keep trying to make it uh, funnier and better and push things. Um, and, And I also really... The other thing that from television is once we had the actors attached, is writing toward their strengths uh, as well, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, you know just something you get to do in television because you know who's going to say <laughs> these right. jokes. Right. So, right. is it different assessing whether a joke land? Because in TV, you're assessing the joke in the writers' room. Yeah, like you're getting reactions. Essentially, from, yeah, uh, yeah. How how the useful you have is like a table read. Yeah. Right? How useful or more confusing is it to have thousands of people reacting at once? What's confusing about it is that it changes night to night. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> right. so there's a, uh, I mean, there's some things that always land, obviously, and then the the there's other jokes that some nights kill, and the next night, and then you're wondering the temperature of the room. Well, yeah, is it the room? Right. Is it the timing? Is it? It just makes you question. There is a different uh, pressure of having of standing there with, you know, fifteen hundred people watching a show yeah. that you don't get in television. Yeah. Yeah. That there is an immediacy to it that is really helpful and super terrifying. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And how did um, 
all of you, but I guess Eddie, you specifically think about, because Beetlejuice is not a musical, but it has a musical identity for a lot of us, I feel like, and not only because Deo's in it, but also we all know, like, Danny Elfman is one of the few film yeah. composers <laughs> that everybody that, like knows his name. Yeah. Um, how did you think about coming up with your own musical language for that? Well, and this is this is a ridiculous story. I think I've told you this, but when I was first talking to um, Scott and Anthony and Alex Timbers mm-hmm. on the phone, um, it was about 4 a.m. because it's Australia, and I was in mm-hmm. Brisbane doing a show. But, you know, I'd been up all night ready for this phone call. Right, you right? hadn't gotten up early, <laughs> I was right? pretty. I, just <laughs> I was like, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't be in a, a weird hotel room because it's like I need to be able to talk. So I'm like walking the streets of Brisbane at 4 a.m. It's a lovely town. It was good weather. And um, and Alex Timbers was going, yeah, I kind of hear the music being kind of carnivale, sort of circus, a little bit kind of oingo boingo. And I didn't know that Danny Elfman had a band called Oingo Boingo. Oh. So I was thinking, Oingo Boingo, right. An automatopoeia? Is that what that was? I'm like, like, yeah, yeah, I think I'm really getting your vibe. But I went went home and started writing. I mean, I should have just... Americanism, Oingo Boingo. I should have Googled, but I was born in 1977, so I'm like... I'm not a digital native and I don't automatically do that. So I was like, Oingo Bongo, no, I get it. We're like, we're talking on that, on that light level. And I killed myself thinking, Oingo Bongo, Jesus Christ, what is this? Um, but I was like, Oingo Bongo has got to, you know, it, it, without knowing that it was bad, yep. I was like, okay, I think I know what he's talking about. And so when I was writing Beetlejuice's song, the whole being dead thing, you know, I, I was like right. listening to a whole bunch of different That's music, everything number, from yeah. Tom Waits to... And when I, I came, I, I went back to Mr. Bungle, an amazing band, who are like um, are great at fusing multiple styles together because I knew that Beetlejuice needed to be as surprising and as diverse as he was in the scenes. The scenes he'd like turn on a dime, sweet, right. sour, all over the place. And I'm like, well, it's going to be really boring if he just stays on the one track in song. Right. So finding all those styles and fusing them together and kind of it was a mixture of sort of scar and... Um, like circ- kind of weird circus music and and eventually I wrote the thing and it was, wasn't was like two years later before I worked out that Danny Elfman had a band called Oingo Bongo that I could have just looked up on Spotify so <laughs> anyway it worked out fine but it did conveniently sound like the words Oingo Bongo sound right? yeah you like, know what like Oingo Bongo is yeah, yeah they actually right. they sound, they sound like they go together band. yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> no it was just weird when um, the song came in and it started out Oingo Bongo Oingo yeah. Bongo what is this that's what you wanted it's exact no not at all. How it's <laughs> and uh, you've sort of alluded to this. The um, the storyline departs fairly significantly from the from the film. Yeah. Um, what did you feel like it was? What guided those changes? Number. I think you've talked a little bit about that already. Um, but also, what did you feel like it was important for you to keep, and why? I feel like there's a version of this musical that exists without any sandworms in them. But they're rest assured, listeners, there is a sandworm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The sandworm. I mean, you know, first draft. The sandworm was the main character. It was all about right. sandworm's journey. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, no, I mean, uh, Anthony. I hate to, sand. To, was the song. Sand. It's a big dilemma. Sand. It's a real dilemma for yeah. sandworm. It's kind of it was sort of a part of your world. Sort of yeah. like, yeah. why is there uh, so much sand? I don't like sand. Um, no, uh, Anthony alluded to this earlier. There's, you know, the one interesting thing about the movie that feels like this sort of, you know, beguiling absence. There is like. 
Delia is not Lydia's mother in the movie. They right. make that clear. Delia is the Catherine O'Hara character. The Catherine O'Hara character. Lydia is the yeah. Winona Ryder character. And Lydia is the Winona Ryder character. And uh, yeah, and they, they make it clear in the movie that, that she's not her mom. I thought you'd made that up. I had to look that up, actually. I thought you guys had made that change because I, in my head, Catherine The O'Hara only change was... we made is that Lydia's mother died. Right, uh, right. But I, I thought you had made yeah. up that she was a stepmom or, or a, right, a right. girlfriend. And yeah. I turns out no, as yeah. I discovered. It's actually, but it's very, it's very, it's very, very deep. I think there's one line in the whole movie that makes it clear that, you know, she's not calling her Delia to be impertinent to her mom. She's calling her Delia because she's not her mom. Right. right. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's buried really, really deep. There's a lot of things buried in that movie really deep. At one point, Beetlejuice says something about, you've been to Saturn? And, and you're like, and it just in, you know, in the just stream of crazy things that he says, that's in there. That used to be, that was actually a plot point in the movie. about <laughs> Yeah, the early drafts of Beetlejuice, the screenplay, are really fascinating. They're very dark. Oh, did you look at all those? Oh, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. We yeah, looked cool. at a lot of that stuff. It's all very dark and, yeah, very violent. <laughs> yeah. It was like a full-on horror movie with these astrological yeah. sort of components. he's named for a star, and yeah, that was right. much more a part of the right. plot. But, and so then what... As the movie exists now, did you feel like it was important for you to keep? For me, it was the the kind of, I think, the sensibility of Beetlejuice. Um, obviously, in the movie, he's trapped in a train set, which is, or not a train set, but a model of the town, right. which is hard to do on stage. Yeah. Uh, and so we we had to talk a lot about, about what is what what is trapping him instead. And then right. when we kind of found this idea of him being frustrated that he has no, that he's been made powerless and invisible to to everyone because um, what does a ghost want to do but haunt uh, and scare uh, and that there's a connection to Lydia feeling invisible in her grief right. and that these two people who feel not seen by the world you lash out in bad ways when you feel that way uh, and so once we found kind of that emotional core that helped kind of guide all the choices in the show basically Right. Yeah. I mean, there's so much room for Beetlejuice that, that you know that the movie doesn't. I mean, Beetlejuice is, is on screen in the movie for about 14 minutes. Yeah, it's not which, long, which right? People forget. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, just giving him wants and needs, giving him some kind of you know emotional yearning was right. like, and you know, around about the time we were cracking that, Eddie, you know, was making this gorgeous ballad called "Invisible" uh, that Lydia sings, and, right. and it all started to seem, you know, like of a piece that way emotionally. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't go back to the film a whole lot, I must yeah. say. But, I mean, I, I watched it, I'd obviously seen it when it first came out, and I watched it again um, when we were talking, I was writing the initial songs. And I've dropped back into sections to try and get a sense of them. But the most recent time I went back was to look at the Netherworld again when it came to rewriting, you know, the um, the, the boy band moment and just trying to get a gauge on some of those characters in there and what they, you know, what they might offer up in terms of a song or a, or a scene in there. Um, and it's really hard to balance between, you know, um, the, the sort of fandom and what people want us. I've, I've done a couple of adaptations from film to stage and everyone has been, everyone has different uh, kind of algorithms and theories about what must stay from the movie and, and what, you know, and but we don't want to put the movie on stage, but there are things like, but yeah, you must have this iconic line or this iconic character and... I mean, I I'm really feel like Beetlejuice has kind of paid homage to the film. Has a lot of the the kind of aesthetic world. I mean, the visual language of the of the, the piece that we've created, well, the, the David Corrins and William Ivy Long have created on sort of sets, and even Kenneth Posner on lights. This world is is very much like the film. It's 
it's yeah. crazy and it it's moves. Remarkably and it, like the film, actually. It does. Yeah. It conjures the spirit of a Tim Burton movie in a very uh, direct way. Yeah, and once that's kind of taken care of, it does give you a license to kind of go on on a flight of fancy in a different direction, and people will go with you. Like right. you've got to. These are the characters. Once you go, yes, this is the characters. These are the world, and I think you were kind of open to seeing where it goes. And I like the fact that we've taken it to different interesting places. And we places. wanted to take things from the movie but repurpose them. Like, yeah. obviously we want to go to the netherworld, which is a big thing in the movie, but who goes to the netherworld right. is different. Is different, uh, yeah. And and we want to do Banana Boat because that's like a musical moment from the movie that everyone loves and obviously it has to, it's a musical so it's not going to be lip-synced right. <laughs> right. like yeah. it is in the movie. Um, but also who's causing that and why is different. Yeah. Uh, and right. so there's, so we're, we tried to like take things that people love from the movie and that we love from the movie but use them to tell our stories uh, so it kind of is I, I don't think it was fan service as much as these these are if you're adapting something like what are the tent poles that you love and then how can we use them to tell the story we're going to tell and it has been great from the beginning of we were never pressured to just like put the movie on stage right. uh, which is which was yeah. exciting yeah. you mentioned a little earlier Anthony that uh, um, the, the animated series like cartoons from the 80s yeah. or 90s and many things from the 90s like Ren and Snippy and things like that yeah. like, uh, are a little more are, would be considered the word problematic which <laughs> yes. I don't think existed back then right? No it did not. How, how much of that challenge was there in adapting a work a comedy from a, a sort of raucous obnoxious like purposefully obnoxious comedy from that era into uh are sort of rapidly kind of evolving. Yeah, sense of I, what's I mean that's always been a conversation because I think Beetlejuice is a character who is in the movie is a sexual harasser. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, um, and I think you know he's marrying a child, uh, yeah. and so the like how to grab hold, <laughs> which of... was fine in the eighties. Yeah, I was like, like that was cool yeah, in the eighties, right? Yeah. 80s, everyone did that. <laughs> yeah, the world's gone mad. <laughs> what happened? Um, but it. So I think. Those things were always questions, and I think even the character of Otho is a little in the movie is is yep. now you'd be like oh he's very much a stereotype and right. um, Otho is the kind of guru designer. Yes, guy, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, so we wrestled with a lot of those things of like how to bring them, how to keep the edge, but but also grab a hold of it uh, and like put it in like for us like the the wedding at the end now is is not is is Lydia the character of Lydia like grabs a hold of that idea. Yeah. Uh, and gives her the power of, of it instead, and that was some of that is is how to make it right. more palatable, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Putting Lydia in control of a lot of things was a, was was fun yeah. for us, and 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 solved a lot of those problems. Um, right. The nice thing is that like of all the taboos, though, death is still the biggest, and yeah. also the one that like is, you know, the the most the one that transcends politics most of all possibly just because it's so <laughs> completely inarguable yeah. <laughs> so i mean in terms of like oh how how can you how can you be shocking without uh, just you know rehashing uh, you know old, old you know being problematic uh, you know death gives you a lot of opportunities that way right. <laughs> it's right. like you're there's we're ne we're never going to yeah. evolve past being shocked by that right. and that's <laughs> right. interesting i think and also um Sex or, or, or sexual power is such a huge topic at the moment. You know, um, who who has power? Who has agency? What we can laugh at? What we feel safe laughing at? You know, and and I also like think the you know the 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 show our show never punches down to anyone, right? It always it always punches up because that's where we come from with with comedy. But having said that, there is a lot of 
um, material, especially in DC, that was like unsafe. You weren't sure where to put it. It was kind of scary and manipulative. And there is more. We are living in times where there's a there's a kind of a little gap between receiving the information and and comedy works completely on surprise and and shock. You know, you yeah. get a piece of information that jolts you and you and you laugh. And now there is a there is a perceptible gap between receiving that information and then processing it to go am am I allowed to laugh at this who is the who is the subject of the joke is it is it a joke about a subject that where is the power being shifted here and when you've got all those kind of micro processes going between the information and the laugh it can be difficult there was a lot of laughing with hands over mouths which I love to see you know which is am I allowed to laugh at this is this is this naughty, you know? But <laughs> you know, you, you you only have to talk to um, um, New York stand-up comedians, and and they will tell you. I mean, there I think stand-up comedians at the coalface of how um, a culture is experiencing their world and what they are prepared to laugh at and what what they're not. And it is a very interesting time where the where the plates are shifting underneath all the time. Is this is you know who is being robbed of their power by this joke you know who was it's really uncertain time so it's hard time to be making comedy but i also think it's a very important time to be making comedy yeah. uh before we go what's on everybody's plates next eddie i'm going to be unemployed after the 20th <laughs> oh, yeah. is that it? Is that how i plan on just taking my kids to school <laughs> Great. Um, Great. walking around central park feeding the birds i'm going to feed some birds right. and uh Great. talk to the turtles and then Hope like hell there's another job Show on the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Eddie does a lot of his best writing in Central Park. I do most true? of my writing oh. in Central Park. Yeah. Okay, it's pretty great. Yeah. I go straight from this from the opening of this to Atlanta, where I'm shooting a show I'm making for Comedy Central with the comedian Roy Scovel called right. Robbie. That'll probably be out uh, next year. Cool, great. Uh, I've got a young adult book out. Cool, and I'm going back up to Massachusetts where we're shooting season two of Castle Rock. Right, which just announced a really great cast. So that'll be yeah, that cast amazing. we're really, really excited. The yeah. dailies are looking pretty. We're gonna do a, a switch where that cast does Beetlejuice and our Beetlejuice cast. We're gonna does do a big crossover. Awesome! Yeah, I is, love that. This is, this is an exclusive. <laughs> You're getting an exclusive. Here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is the next Broadway? What is the next movie you guys want to adapt to Broadway? I don't think I would do another movie adaptation. I mean, I've done a couple of them now. What really interests me is, yeah. is creating an entirely new idea. Where, you, where the, I mean, we never really felt completely limited by Beetlejuice, but there are there were a lot of rules. We had to, we had to like work, we had to solve a lot of rules. You know, who can be seen, who's dead, where do you go, when do you come back, who can come back, all that stuff is really was complicated. Um, so I love I love the idea of of a an original musical where you can set down the path and go, okay, where is where are we going with this, and just make what you want. Um, do you guys, uh, Anthony and Scott, do you see yourselves uh, coming back to theater anytime soon? I mean, theater is where we both first fell in love with making things. Uh, so I would, I would like to. I mean, my <clears throat> movie, I've always, I don't know if there's a big enough audience for it, but I've always wanted to do the Hudsucker Proxy. Uh, oh, yeah. <clears throat> I think it just would be an f- amazing musical. Uh, and I love the iconography of it and the characters. And, um, and we could get Tim Robbins. We could get Tim Jennifer But but yeah, I just th- for me the the three headed uh, music lyrics book collaboration with a director of musical theater is 
what fires me up uh, in in, every, in everything. So it's it's mm. definitely it's like the drug I want to keep chasing. Right? The yeah. Rock, yeah. the Chase Rock, the music. I'm gonna make a musical about the Rock. Twelve years old. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Rock. You mean the the, the actor? Or? Dwayne. Oh, Dwayne oh, the, the Rock. rock. Oh, the rock. Oh, yeah. How about the Rock in the Rock? Musical adaptation of the Rock. Starring the Rock. Rock. Starring the Rock. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's do it. And so with this, <laughs> I got nothing on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to see it. Let's go to Central Park and write that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, guys. Wilson, thank you for being here. Thank um, you. Have thank fun you. tonight. Uh, pleasure. Uh, talk to you soon. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. That was Scott Brown, Anthony King, and Eddie Perfect, the writers of Beetlejuice, now in previews at the Winter Garden Theater and opening April 25th. If you like what you've heard on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe wherever finer podcasts are dispensed. I'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.